From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. Everyone eventually succumbs to the one thing that none of us can ever escape, death. But what happens after is up to debate. Some say nothing at all. We just go into an eternal slumber and every minuscule detail that comprises who we are just comes to an end. Others believe in an afterlife where we spend eternity in heaven or hell, while others still believe our essence or soul transcends death into another realm or plane of existence the details of which are anyone's guess. Some religions or belief systems point to yet another option, the idea that our soul returns again to live out another life here on earth, that perhaps we've all lived countless lives. Believers often cite sessions with hypnotherapists as evidence that we've all lived here before, maybe as a knight or an emperor or a slave. Another piece of purported evidence are the memories allegedly recalled by young children who talk about their previous lives, how they lived, and even how they died. Now, it's easy to brush children's stories off as nonsense or just kids having incredible imaginations, which is exactly what journalist Tom Schroeder did until he discovered the work of psychiatrist Dr. Ian Stevenson, who spent a lifetime studying the phenomenon. Tom would later travel halfway around the world with Dr. Stevenson, and witnessed dozens of cases that simply seemed impossible. Were these children telling the truth? If not, then how could they recount information in detail that they had no way of knowing about families they'd never even met? So does the soul really survive the death of the physical body? And does it return to live out other lives, constantly learning and growing and expanding? This week's guest is journalist and author Tom Schroeder, who discusses his time with Dr. Stevenson and his book, Old Souls, Compelling Evidence from Children Who Remember Past Lives. Welcome to this week's mystery, part one of Old Souls and Past Lives with Tom Schroeder on From the Void. Okay, welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited this week to have Tom Schroeder on to talk about uh, a book that, you know, like I said, came out a little while ago, but is uh, uh, still uh, always a fascinating topic to discuss. So thank you so much for taking some time out of your day. Hey, it's my pleasure, John. So before we get into kind of the book and the, and the research that you did here, uh, tell folks a little bit about your background and what it is that you do. Sure. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been a lifelong journalist. i Worked for newspapers like the Miami Herald and the Washington Post was the most recent newspaper I worked for, and um, and then I was I edited the Washington Post magazine. And after I left the Post, I um, I continued writing some books uh, about you know topics that I found especially fascinating and personal connection to. And one of the first books I wrote was. The one we're going to talk about today was Old Souls, uh, which uh, 
you know, I got interested in because um, when I was in Miami, there was a very um, reputable um, scientist who uh, uh, was actually a psychiatrist at Mount Sinai Hospital there. And he had an excellent reputation. And he ended up writing a book about uh, cases where he would um, hypnotize patients and regress them to, to, you know, actually his point was to regress them to the point where their whatever problems they were experiencing began. <clears throat> and he found that some of them went all the way back to what seemed to be previous lives. And we're talking about hundreds of years ago, you know, like as an Egyptian or in the Middle Ages or something like that. And what intrigued me was the fact that this, this guy with all these mainstream credentials, you know, was doing this. So, and he had written this book that became a bestseller about it. And so I got interested in it and, and I investigated it. And, um, and I, I really found the cases very unconvincing for a whole number of reasons was um, one is that when you hypnotize somebody, you know, I, I went through hypnosis myself and past life regressions, so to speak. And my experience of was you're relaxing and it's very pleasurable. And they're saying, imagine this or imagine that. So I did. You know, why not? You know, I'm relaxed. I imagine it. But it didn't feel like anything real to me. I was just it was almost like I was writing a short story or something in my head, you know. And so that was one reason is that the the whole point of hypnosis is for someone to be willing to uh, to go along with suggestions that the hypnotist is making. But the more important thing was that none of the information that these people were um, relating from their alleged previous lives were things that they couldn't have known from reading historical novels or from some, you know, easily accessible personal knowledge. And in fact, there were many things that, that people said that actually were contradictory, you know, like uh, one woman who was regressing to allegedly many previous lives, um, you know, said she had remembered being a slave girl at the, in the same year that she later you know, remember being a silk merchant, you know, so, yeah. and also they were so far back, they were, and all these lives tended to be the kind of things that you could romanticize that were like the, su the stuff of, uh, of historical novels, or, rom or even romance novels. So I, I found, I didn't find any, any evidence there that was really compelling to make me think that that's really what was going on. And in fact, um, you know, there is a saying, you know, this sort of saying in, in science that says, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And I just didn't feel there was, you know, anything extraordinary about the evidence that he was presenting. And I was impressed with how wholeheartedly he seemed to buy into this. And, you know, and as a scientist and a physician, I felt that, you know, he should have had sort of a more rigorous approach. But anyway, I, as I was investigating this, I came across 
um, a reference to uh, another psychiatrist, a guy named Dr. Ian Stevenson, who is at the University of Virginia. And he, he, had, he, didn't, he wasn't interested in hypnosis cases. What he was interested in was that he, he was interested, he had all along been, had a sort of a side interest in the paranormal and things like that, and he read a lot. And he came across from multiple sources, you know, all sorts of different sources from, you know, newspaper clippings to, you know, old books and, and diaries and things like that. And they were all presented in different ways. There were, you know, on the surface, they didn't have a lot in common. But when you get bored down to the sort of basis of these stories, they all involved small children who spontaneously began talking about what seemed to be past lives. And this fascinated him. And he wrote a little paper about it um, for uh, something called the, uh, the, the Journal for Scientific Exploration, which was interested in the scientific exploration of, of claims that were, you know, considered paranormal at the time. And he said, you know, th this is an interesting phenomenon, and it appears to be a, a phenomenon that cuts across cultures, that in, in very different cultures, these case reports, if you boil them down to their essence, are all extremely similar, where a child too small to read certainly. And as soon as they start talking, begin to say things about, you know, like, uh, well, this isn't my real house. My real house was much bigger than this. And it had two wells instead of one. And we had five cows instead of one goat. You know, very specific details, very unromantic. Notice that they're all run unromantic type details. So, you know, which is significant because it, it sort of cuts down the possibility that this is fantasizing, you know, because it's just mundane. You don't usually fantasize about mundane things. And so he, 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 so he gets a call from the, you know, from the editor of the, of the journal saying, well, we agree that someone should investigate these and why don't you do it? And so he, this sort of sent, this was in the, in the early 60s. And mm. sent him, and so he he went over, you know, and most of these cases that he was getting, the ones with, you know, the most information anyway, were coming from India or the Middle East. So he goes to India, and he has a few, you know, he has a few little cases that have names associated with them or or towns or villages or something. And he figures he might be able to track down the, the people who were involved in these cases. And then when he gets there, <laughs> the cases just start falling out of the woodwork. Everybody he runs into seems to say, well, I have a niece or did that, or, or my uncle when he was young did that, or, or, you know, or I know a girl that lives in the next village over that says things like that. I mean, they were all over the place. He, hadn't, he was absolutely not expecting that. He had no idea that they, he was thinking these were extremely rare cases that he was going to have to go to great lengths to sort of find, find them. But instead, they're like dropping down out of the trees on him. And, and, and so, you know, he, so he starts doing this and this be, and he ends up this ends up becoming the main focus of his life. And in fact, 
it really got him in trouble at, you know, he was at one point, he was the head of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Virginia. And basically, you know, the, the, the powers that be were embarrassed by this. So he basically sort of got forced out of that job. And he might have been, you know, completely out of luck, except that the um, a guy named Chester Carlson, a guy who invented Xeroxing and had this huge fortune, was fascinated by this. And he gave him a huge grant to create his own institute at the university. And of course, the university isn't going to turn down a huge grant, even if it's for something that they consider slightly embarrassing or even very embarrassing. So for 30 years, he went around the world doing this. And he, at the time that I think at the time that I ran into him, he was already close to 80. And he'd done like over 3,000. He'd gone and investigated over 3,000 of these cases in the 30, over 30 year period. And, uh, and so actually it was my wife that says, well, that's the thing that's interesting in all this. I forget about the hypnosis stuff. So that's the stuff that's really, you know, really seems to be much more intriguing and plausible. And so you should write a book on that. <laughs> so I called him and I said, you know, I, I would like to, I'd like to come on your research trips with you. And, and he, at first he says, well, I'm all interviewed out. He says, you know, and, I, and plus, I, I want this to, to be taken seriously by my colleague scientists, you know, and, and, and some, some kind of sort of sensationalistic journalistic coverage is exactly what I don't want. Um, you know, and I, so it took me like, and he says, plus, I promised my wife I'm not going on any more foreign trips. So I, I spent like, it basically took me almost two years. First of all, he, that he, told, he lied to his wife. He actually was going on more foreign trips. Um, you know, he couldn't resist it, really. So then he said, well, you know, I, I do want to go back and revisit some of these, some of my cases that I found most intriguing. And maybe you could come along, but, you know, you'd have to pay your own way. And if you, you know, and it, this is, there's a lot of stuff in the outback, you know, here. And, and, and it's like difficult enough for these people to accept me coming in with my, you know, research assistant, it would just make it harder. And, and I said, look, I said, I'll pay my own way. Uh, I won't cause any problems. You know, if there's ever a problem, I'll bow out, you know, of, of me being there. And so finally, he, he agreed to, fortunately for me, I'm a big tennis buff. And he, he was a lifelong tennis player. So when I went to visit him at, in Charlottesville, he said, well, I, I need a, a fourth for doubles at the club. You know, there are these two guys. They always beat us. And uh, so, so I said, well, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll play with you. And so we go and we, and, and we, we won because, you know, these guys were all about his age. And I, at the time, I was in my, I guess I was in my late 30s or maybe 40 at the time. And I was, you know, I, I was pretty good. So, so I think that helped. <laughs> and so finally he said, okay. And, uh, 
and I remember that when, you know, I was going to meet him in Paris and then we were going to, because I meet him at the Paris airport and we were going to board a plane to go to, to Lebanon. And I remember waiting for him thinking sort of, I had, I had a book contract at that point and I thought, you know, this could be a total disaster because I could go there and he could be crazy, you know, or an obvious fraud of some kind. These cases could be garbage, you know, and then well, then I have to give back the advance. I mean, what am I going to do? So that was my main concern when we when we started, when I began this thing, this first trip I took with him. So so what time frame are we are we talking about here when when you meet him and 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 this and was mark on this trip? was our first trip together was in the fall in the fall of 1997 and interesting so, trip, go ahead i was to say it, w- what's interesting to me is is when he kind of starts his career and and kind of digging into this type of research it's we're really talking about an era where this is really considered very fringe uh in regards to the topic the subject matter so uh obviously a little bit less or so in the 90s uh compared to what it is now, you know, obviously now it's, you know, there's, there's whole TV channels dedicated to uh, this type of subject matter. And I think people are a little more open to it, but um, I can't imagine it was easy uh, from his perspective. He's trying to get research subjects to talk it, to. Yeah. You know. Well, it also it destroyed his marriage. His first wife was oh, wow. horribly embarrassed. You know, colleagues would come up to her and say, what's, what's up with your husband? You know, why is he throwing his career away on this? And she couldn't understand it. So this created, you know, this created a, a, enough problems in their marriage. So it eventually it ended. And by the time, by 97, he had had a second marriage, you know, w- with a woman who completely sort of understood and supported him. Wow. So. So at this point, it, it kind of what what I mean, I keep thinking about the the locations that you guys are traveling to. You talk about in the book uh, Lebanon and, and India. And it seems to me that strikes me as areas where um, in, in regards to religion, they're a little a little more open to things like reincarnation. And it's, you know, in in some instances, it's, it's part of the religion. Is that why you felt like you had more people who are open to talking about their experiences versus, you know, you do talk about the U S later in the book, but, but initially it seems like there were more cases or more people readily available to talk about this topic. Yeah. Well, I I had kind of a personal insight into that because, um, when my son was like just starting to talk, he would, he would say, often he would say when I was a daddy and I would correct him as if it was a matter of grammar, you know, I said, no, no, you mean when you're going to be a daddy? No. And I was a daddy. And, you know, I, I just didn't pursue it. I, you know, I, instead, I basically shut him up about it. And so, so that, you know, I think that certainly if, if people have this in their belief systems, that they would be certainly more open to hearing that from their children to some degree. And, and maybe and the children would feel more comfortable about talking about it. Of course, skeptics will say, well, you know, they're just coming up with this stuff because that's what they're told to believe. And, you know, and that and that's often was one of early on. That was one of the most common arguments that I'd hear 
to discredit this stuff. But, you know, but if you if you start looking into it and you start thinking about it, what you initially find out is that um, that, you know, the first thing to say is that if the power of the of the culture, the belief of the culture is enough to force kids to come up with these fantasies that aren't 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 real, then isn't wouldn't it be equally likely likely that the power of a culture that disbelieves in this thing would would be enough to suppress the real experiences of children? I mean, if you have it one way, you have to have it the other. And then you look into it and you discover like the first place we went was Lebanon. And what we these cases were doing was in the community of Druze, which is a sort of subsection of the Islam religion, very, very different with its own set of beliefs. And one of the sort of, you know, most notable Druze beliefs that really sets them apart is they believe in, in reincarnation. And they believe in instant reincarnation, that as soon as somebody dies, that soul is immediately reborn in another body at that same moment in time. But all these cases, you know, first of all, they weren't cases that were that were several generations back or a hundred years back, like the hypnosis cases, you know, which struck me as fantasy. They were cases about the immediate previous generation. But unlike unlike the the belief that, you know, the very solid tenet of the Druze belief that when you were reincarnated, it happened instantly upon the death of one person into the birth of another. You know, this was, these were people who maybe, you know, maybe were um, the person that they seem to remember was born like a year or two or five years after the death. I mean, the death of the person was two or three or four years before they were born. So if, if they were, if all of this was manufactured to support the cultural belief, then why would it be at odds with the cultural belief? And then in India, you know, the Hindu belief is, is in karma, that your, your new life depends on your behavior in the previous life. And so that if you lived a good life, that you'd be born in under good circumstances. And if you live, had lived a bad life, you'd be born under bad circumstances. Well, the cases, the, the cases, most of the cases that we saw in India, you know, there was an absolutely no correlation between the, there was no karmic correlation between the two lives. In fact, some of them were absolutely counter to it. And, um, and so, again, you know, if it's if these cases are manufactured to support a cultural belief, you think they do a better job of doing that. So that kind of argued against it. Plus, there were many cases where um, and then the other argument was that I often heard was, well, you know, th th these parents are putting these kids up to it because, you know, they want notoriety in their community or maybe they're hoping to cash in on it somehow. Well, there were many cases where the parents were very unhappy that their kids were saying this. I mean, for one thing, imagine if if your little child is saying to you, you're not my daddy, you know, <laughs> you know, this, yeah. house, this house stinks compared to the, my house. You know, you, it would be uncomfortable. You wouldn't like that. 
you'd feel rejected for one thing. And then there were other instances where, for instance, there was one uh, family in Lebanon where that they felt, well, they had the kid that there was a little girl in Lebanon who called as soon as she could speak, really, she'd pull the phone off the hook and start calling into it, at calling Layla, Layla, Layla. And, um, and they were saying, well, what, what are you, why are you doing that? I mean, she couldn't even, you know, really talk on the phone yet. She was too little. And then as she got older, she started saying, well, you know, Layla was my daughter. And, um, and I, I just wanted to talk to her. And then she gave the name of her. She said, and I have a husband and I have, se- and Layla is one of seven children. And she named all the children. She, uh, she said where her family was from. And it was a town, you know, maybe like an hour or so, a couple hours away. And, um, and she just would go on and on about this. And um, and she gave and she gave enough information to identify a family in the city that was a wealthy family in the city. And, you know, the, the woman who she claimed to be, um, you know, she gave her name and her husband's name and her kid's name had died and had been flown to the U.S. to Virginia, actually, and had died in heart surgery and that. And so that family learned that there is this little, you know, they they sent somebody to that that they knew in that town to ask around. And they discovered that there was this family that fit the details that the little girl had been coming up with. And so, you know, curious, they two of the daughters uh, of the surviving of the woman's, you know, the dead woman's daughters came to this town unannounced. And showed up, and the fur and they walk into the house, and the little girl says, greets them by name, and said, "Did your uncle give you my jewelry as I asked him to?" Wow! And this completely floored them because only they knew, only the family knew that before the surgery, that the fatal surgery that she didn't recover from, she had asked her brother. That if something happens to me, please distribute. Uh, this is how I want my jewelry to be distributed, and nobody else knew that. And also, one of the, the one of the other sisters was named Layla, and she lived in South America. So before her surgery, um, this woman was trying to call Layla and couldn't get through to her. So mm. remember, with a little girl's picking up the phone, this is the first thing she did. And, um, and once they, and, and so the, these daughters were convinced, but their, their father's brothers were sort of big shot merchants, and they did a lot of business in Saudi Arabia, where um, reincarnation is, is bad, is anathema there. So mm. they didn't want this. They were very unhappy at the idea that this story would get out there that, you know, that there was a little girl claiming to be their, their niece reincarnate or their sister reincarnated. 
And um, so they really tried to when they tried to suppress the case. They were very unhappy about about the family talking about it. And that was the moment where I was most impressed and most convinced that this was a genuine phenomenon and not something that was a fraud of some kind. Because we went to see this family, and we knock on the door, and the husband recognizes Stevenson from when he'd been there years ago. I think he interviewed them like almost 20 years ago when the little girl was like three or four. And she's now this 24-year-old English teacher in Beirut. (laughs) And so he opens the door and and he greets Stevenson and seems very happy to see him. But then the daughters come out and they're very unhappy to see him because they said, you have no idea how much trouble this caused in our family the last time you were here talking about this. So you really need to leave. But meanwhile, the husband's like making us tea and stuff. So we're in there. And so, so we get them to talk to us and, and the daughter saying, you know, I cannot deny that this girl knew things that nobody could have known except our mother. And I can't explain it, but, you know, but it's just bad news for us. And you can't be, we can't be talking about it to you, that kind of thing. And then the husband kind of takes us aside. And what had happened with the little girl was that as soon as she reconnected with this family she believed to be her past life family, she would call the the husband, you know, who who had remarried. And he felt awkward about it because this little girl kept calling him up, you know, saying, you know, you know, sweetheart, you know, <laughs> don't forget me. You know? And she's like this little girl. And he said, and, and he was obviously very fond of her. And then he said, and I still talk to her. She's 24 now. And, uh, and he, he kept it a secret. His daughters, he says, my daughters don't know this. But then just recently, I told her she really had to stop calling me because not for my sake, but for hers, because she, she was un- still unmarried and that she really needed to get on with her current life and to forget about. So all of that stuff made it clear to me that these were real stories. I mean, I, I was still didn't know what the phenomenon was causing it. But I did know, I mean, completely believe that these, you know, that the other thing that everybody said was, oh, they're making this stuff up or they're crazy or whatever that no, these were genuine people who had genuine feelings that had impacted their lives and that they accepted that it was real. So that, you know, that was a a big moment for me in, in the research. Thank you for listening to part one of my interview with journalist and author Tom Schroeder. Tune in next week for part two. Until then, if you enjoyed the show and like what we're doing, consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing, and as always, sharing with a friend. Until next week, you've been listening to From the Void.